So, well, good evening. Good evening. Tonight is uh, the talios of four previous nights of teaching. It's been an audacious, I should rather say audacious undertaking. Kind of an exciting adventure and a truly worthy pursuit. You may not have fully grasped the riches of the revelation that our Father has been blessing us with yet. But by the end of tonight, we hope to bring it, pastors, into a clarion focus. Amen. You've been accumulating a cluster of data points. They're rarely even considered in Christian realms. They are the predicate foundation upon which the words new covenant stand. Tonight you'll have a better understanding of them. You've been slowly gathering, gleaning, and gaining building blocks to define exactly what is meant by the word new covenant. Our prayer for you tonight is that the God of Israel give you wisdom and understanding so that you may know the hope to which you have been called as a co-heir with Israel in a newer covenant that is by union of the son of David and the Messiah and yourself. Amen. Amen. That's a very high task. We have a formatting change tonight. We're going to mix things up. We have a truly massive amount of information to cover. So we're going to begin with a recap and then read through the chapters and we're going to reiterate each of our gleaned data points as we come to them in the text. Tonight we'll experience every verse together with a highlighted recap throughout until we come to chapter 31, verses 29 through 40, where at that point we'll begin to teach and expound on the text. So, Miss Jennifer, you have the night off. Yeah. We're going to begin with an overview. And our overview is not meant to teach it again. It's not meant to go through it. So if you're hearing it tonight for the first time or you failed to understand it the previous three or four times, this is meant just to remind you on what night it happened so you can go and listen to the hours of audio and hundreds of pages of notes to justify the statement that we're making. But we're going to begin with an overview, and then we're going to go line by line through both chapters, and we're going to remind you of points of overview through those two chapters. Then we're going to slow down and really get into the newer covenant. Amen. All right. So our first teaching session, we covered Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 11. We discover connections between the name of God and the nature of His Word. Both share the same nature. We also discovered the book of consolation, a book within a book, in verses 1 through 3. We saw Jeremiah, who afflicted the comfortable, begin to comfort the afflicted, in verse 3. We also covered in great depth the certainty, say certainty, certainty, of the reunification of Israel and Judah as one restored nation, one restored house. We covered in verse 7, 
We were being reacquainted with the unparalleled uniqueness of the time of Jacob's trouble. And the ancient nature of this prediction that goes as far back as even Enoch, the seventh from Adam. This will be an unparalleled time like no other. Now in verse 9, we discovered the intricate beauty of the David and David's son as king scenario. And how Psalm 110, as well as the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, affects our understanding. And you all understood a little better Jesus' phrase, one greater than Solomon is here. Truly magnificent. And last but not least, in verses 5 and 6, we reminded you of the pattern of prophetic progression that is so prevalent throughout the prophets. A northern invasion. Then there would be labor pains. Then there would be a birthing mourning for an only son. Did y'all enjoy that first night? Yes. Yes. So in the second night, week number two out of five, we also had seven points of review. The first one was entitled No Remedy. We talked about 2 Chronicles 36 verse 15, that there was no way to avoid what must occur as labor pains for the nation of Israel, but that it would produce a newer covenant announcement. Number two was a nation born of the Spirit. We had a nation that was birthed in water, but we discovered that night that the nation also had the necessity and would be also birthed of the Spirit. Number three was the elimination of rival lovers. We're talking about all of Israel's adulterous lovers. The ones that she found security in. They'll be eliminated prior to the lavish national salvation. Number four, great guilt acknowledged and atoned. You remember that profound question that the father asked in Jeremiah 30, verse 15? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? (laughs) He knew the answer. But, of course, he was looking for the national acknowledgement of guilt from his nation. Because that must come prior to the salvation of Israel. Number five was the destruction of the destroyers. Shocking for most Christians to realize that the completion of the newer covenant will not occur until the destroyers of Israel are themselves destroyed first. Number six, healing to the sons. This was found in Jeremiah 30, 17 through 20. It declared that healing will come to Israel and their sons. This promise was linked to the mysteriously prophesied leader who was one of their own and will be the one who is worthy to draw near. Amen. And the last point was the overview of Jacob's trouble. You guys remember those seven steps during the time of Jacob's trouble, starting with discipline? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go over those here in a little bit. All right, in night three from Jeremiah 30, verses 22 through 31, 14, we see that Israel is the chosen or elect, say elect. Elect! That is very plain. When the Hebrew uses chosen, the Greek uses elect, and it is interchangeable with the word Israel. Our second point was that there is a coming storm. And this storm is not like a king on a fluffy cumulus cloud. It's like a warrior in a wall cloud. This is dark days, lightning, thunder. And it's very terrifying, but it comes to protect and deliver. At point three, we have the sword and the sieve. The ones that remain are the penitent remnant. Point four, the pierced one speaks to the penitent nation. Oh, yeah. And he says, I have loved you 
with an everlasting love. Wasn't that beautiful? In point five, we see that they find favor in the desert, which foreshadows a second exodus. Wasn't that an incredible revelation? Yes. And these things are coming, and the Lord is showing us what he will bring about for his people. In uh, point six, we see the good shepherd discusses the exodus. And then in point seven, we see a revelation overtones that there will be no more sorrows, that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Come on. That brings us to night four. This one should be fresh on your memory. (laughs) Our first point was about Rachel, who was metaphorically weeping for her children because it looked like there was no hope for them. It wasn't possible that they could be saved. But the Lord said that she would be rewarded. Now, whether you're looking at this in Jeremiah or in Matthew, the point is that there is hope for Israel. Always. Both Matthew and Jeremiah are pointing to the Lord's truth that there is hope. Number three, Ephraim, the worst of the tribes. That one out of the brothers that nobody thought would be saved. Mississippi. He is forecasted as being repentant, mourning his discipline, and receiving salvation from the Lord. Our fourth point, the Lord delights. Somebody say delights. Delights. Delights in the return of all his tribes. More than that, he says to build up highways and signposts for their return. Much like cities of refuge that we covered. Number five, a new thing. A new thing had been done. You guys remember this? There was a planting of salvation, deliverance for Israel, and permanence in the land. We'll cover that in more depth in a little bit. Number six, a woman will surround a man. Man, people have been puzzled by this for years, but we looked at a certain revelation that a man had about a city coming down surrounding a man that was the greatest of all. Almost as if the word builds upon itself and lends further light as you see its continuity. Number seven, we turn from uprooting and tearing down to planting and building. What was spoken in the beginning of Jeremiah is now starting to come to fruition. He's seeing it in a vision, in a dream. Then we finished our evening discussing the fresh planting and 12 crops that were produced that would then, from those 12 crops, heal the rest of the world. Amen. So we're going to hop into 30. We're going to begin in verse 1. And every time we come to a point of review, we're just going to remind you of it and do it rather popcorn style. I mean, we already taught it once. We don't want to bore you. I know you all remember it verbatim. (laughs) We just want to remind you. And that way you'll know which night to go back to if you have questions about it. So we begin in Jeremiah 30 and verse 1. This is the word that came. Hmm. All right, thank you found out it meant coming or ongoing, or eternal. This is the coming, ongoing, eternal word to Jeremiah from the Lord, who of course is Aye Esher Aye, who was, is, and will be. Their natures are linked. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. These are the words of the Lord concerning Israel and Judah. See, it was in verses 1 through 4 that we discovered connections between the name and the word of God. It was in verses 1 through 4 that we discovered that there is a book within the book of Jeremiah called the book of consolation. You'll want to hang on to that one for the moment we get into the Newer Testament. It was in these first four verses that we found out it's Jeremiah who afflicted the comfortable, but he began to comfort the afflicted. That's a summary of the whole plan of God, by the way. We covered in great depth the certainty of the reunification of Israel and Judah. That's because it clearly says in the Bashat, Israel and Judah. We're going to pick up in verse 5 and keep going. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach? Like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale. Now, it was in these verses, 5 and 6, that we reminded you of the pattern of prophetic progression that is so prevalent throughout the prophets. Remember, we showed you on slides. We see invasion from the north. We see labor pains. We see mourning for an only son, which equals salvation. We saw it in a pattern throughout history. We saw it in Amos. We saw it in Jeremiah. We saw it in Zechariah. And we even saw Jesus saying the same exact thing. Come on now, that led us into verse 7. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. But he will be saved out of it. We were becoming reacquainted with the unparalleled uniqueness of this particular time in history called Jacob's Trouble. And there's ancient, the ancient nature of this prediction goes way far back in history. We're talking about the time of Enoch here, the seventh man from Adam, and he's speaking about this unparalleled time in history for the nation of Israel. Verse 8, in that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, yeah. whom I will raise up for them. It was in verse nine that we just verse eight and nine that we discovered the intricate beauty of the David and David's son as king scenario, and how Psalm 110, as well as the life of Solomon in First Kings, affects our understanding. One greater than Solomon is here. So as I finish this out in verse 10 and 11, you can hear each of these seven principles at play. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, Come and on. no one will make him afraid. Hallelujah. I am with you and will save you. Amen. Amen. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, <laughs> I will not completely destroy you. <laughs> I will news. discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Again, you can see the slide that was showed you earlier. 
encapsulating the seven points from our first 11 verses. I'm going to go ahead and pick up in 12 and 13, and then my father will carry from there. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sword, no healing for you. It was in verses 12 and 13 that we reminded you that no remedy for this generation is what is meant by this. We also discovered that the context of the Nicodemus and Jesus conversation was about both individual salvation and national redemption. The nation had passed through the Red Sea. It was born of water, but it had not yet been born of the Spirit. Just like a man who is born passes through water, but must be renewed of the Holy Spirit. That's why I said, are you Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Look, this was in reference to the Exodus. It was in reference to the spiritual renewal of Israel as much as it was in reference to an individual. Let's move to verse 14. All your allies have forgotten you. Now we learned in that moment that other translations say all your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Wow. It was in verse 14 that we discussed God's plan to eliminate all rival lovers. Israel putting themselves in a position of security. God won't have it. He will put an end to it before he redeems his bride. Verse 15. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord, because you are called an outcast, Zion for whom no one cares. Now, no one in the world might care for Zion, but our God, the God of Israel, (laughs) truly cares for Zion. It was from these verses in 15 through 17 that we discussed the great guilt that needed to be acknowledged. The Lord is going to bring his people to an acknowledgement of their great guilt. That is a necessary step in order for him to get to the place where he is able to atone his entire nation and bring that atonement to every one of Israel still there. We also discussed destruction of the destroyers. He said, all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. I don't know about you, but I am greatly looking forward to the day where all of Israel's national enemies are devoured by our king and yeah. we get the retribution Amen. that is coming to them. Amen. Will there even be a UN at that time? <laughs> uh, verse 18. This is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwelling. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers, and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor, and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in the days of old, and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will rise from among them. 
I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. Amen. For who is he who will devote himself to, uh, to be close to me, declares the Lord. Amen. Somebody yell, Jesus! Jesus! It was in verses 18 through 21 that we see the healing to the Son. Amen. You remember the overview of Jacob's trouble. We have a, a slide for that. just want to call you this to remembrance. In verse 15, we have discipline. In 16, protection. 17, healing. 18, compassion. 19, thanksgiving and increase. Verse 20, an established community. And in verse 21, a promised ruler that would be one of their own. Come on. Amen. Again, the overview of night two looked like this. And we have these seven points, and you have pictures, and you have access to notes that you have for review at a later date. Brings us to verse 22. So you will be my people. Amen. And I will be your God. He's talking about Norwegians. Oh, man, that's a good statement. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. Amen. So in verses 22 through 24, we reminded you of the election of Israel, that Israel is God's chosen, and how this carries through the New Testament consistently, and it's plainly stated in the Peshach. Then we discussed the coming storm that both protects and delivers Israel. It is the arrival of their father, their shepherd, and our king as Graftons alongside them. That takes us to chapter 31. Can you believe the pace at which we're moving? Wow. We're proud of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword... Yeah will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past or from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. It was in these first four verses that we gained an understanding of the sword and the sieve concept. It eliminates all except those who are penitent. That's the point. It weeds sinners out. It's the great winnowing fork that John the Baptist warned of. We also saw the pierced one of Zechariah 12 speaking to the penitent nation saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You became acquainted with a concept that was new to you, I'm sure, of favor to Israel in the desert a second time. Not just one exodus, but two. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> you were able to make connections with the good shepherd who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and discuss the second exodus with Moses and Elijah, the embodiment of the law and the prophets. That was from Luke 9. Verse 5, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. Not the West Bank, Amen. Samaria. 
The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim. Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the lands of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad. Young men, old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance. And my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. From verses 5 through 14, we discovered the numerous overtones from the book of Revelation that are actually originated in Jeremiah. When John is getting a vision that there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, he is seeing that the book of Jeremiah is coming to pass in that vision. And then there's that whole well-watered garden thing where we have a stream flowing down the middle of a city that is in a perfect paradise again. Now again, the recap of night three looked like this. Israel's the chosen or elect nation. This is Peshat, not hard to understand. There is a coming storm to protect and deliver. The sword and the sieve weeds out all but the penitent remnant. The pierced one then speaks to the penitent nation from afar. Then they find favor in the desert. It foreshadows the second exodus. The good shepherd discusses the exodus and revelation overtones. No more sorrow. Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. Amen. They will return from the land of the enemy. So that was verses 15 and 16. We saw inconsolable Rachel and we saw that it looked things looked impossible for her. Uh, it, it was a picture of Rachel a thousand years after she lived, so we're not actually speaking about Rachel, but we had a picture of Rachel, and she was weeping, she was crying. But the scripture said that she would be rewarded. Yeah. Yeah. It was illustrating that concerning Israel, what is viewed as impossible is always possible. Amen. 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 We also noted that 
This passage was also quoted in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 18. And we looked at that quote in Matthew. And we came to the conclusion that whether it's in Jeremiah or whether it's being quoted in Matthew, the context is always that there is always hope for Israel. Amen. Verse 17. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Amen. Your children will return to their own land. I've surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented, and I came to understand. I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart turns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. So set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. Wow. From verses 17 through 21, we learn that Ephraim, who is viewed as the worst of the tribes, is predicted to come to full Repentance. Yeah. There's a hopeful message in that. Yeah. Yeah. We further noted that the Lord delights in the return of all tribes. Say all tribes. All, all tribes. tribes. And highways will be built for their return. Verse 22. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing mm. on earth. A woman will surround a man. Amen. And we had a good time studying this verse. We examined the Alex X and all available Hebrew manuscripts. A new thing predicted in Israel's experience, specifically from the Alex X, was a planting of salvation in deliverance that is permanent. Okay? As that continued to progress, looking both at the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, we also saw the imagery that is described in Revelation 21. A city coming down like a woman that it also surrounds a valiant man, a Messiah, a Giborim, that is at the center of the city. In fact, one that is enthroned in the very center on Mount Zion. That takes us to verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Who's he going to plant? Israel and Judah. With the offspring of men and animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. It was from these verses, 23 through 27, that we saw uprooting and tearing down, 
give way to planting and building. The fresh planting of the permanent salvation for Israel produces something in the book of Revelation. Twelve crops that heal the whole world. See, Israel had been saved and delivered many times, but they were always temporary. There is one coming that is permanent, and you cannot take that away from them and give it to someone else. Jeremiah promised it. Our recap of night four looked like this. Inconsolable Rachel rewarded, reminding you what looks impossible for Israel is always still possible. It didn't matter whether Matthew was quoting that or Jeremiah was quoting it. The hope was the same. In Matthew's quote, there's infanticide going on. I mean, they're killing babies. Why does Matthew use the quote? Because there's still hope for Israel. Their Messiah made it. Ephraim, the worst of tribes. His repentance is anticipated in advance as far back as Jeremiah. The Lord delights in the return of all of the tribes. He actually uses cities of refuge language. Build up roads, set up signs. Make sure my people can return because they're going to. And he promises a new never before done kind of thing. A planting of salvation and deliverance that is permanent and can never be revoked. He goes on to say the woman will surround the man. We made numerous ties for you between Revelation 21 and the city that surrounds the throne of God and that statement. It is surely what John is enumerating from. The last thing that we covered really kind of wraps up so much of what we wanted to share with you. We've spent chapters uprooting and tearing down all of Israel's adulteries and prostitutions. And that characterization is going to give way to something else. A planting and a building of the Israel that God always wanted in the place he always wanted them as the people that he said they would be. He doesn't redefine them. He doesn't change it. You're a hillbilly from Tennessee. You are not a Jew. No matter how much you want to be a Jew, you're not, you can wear a tallit and dance with a shofar. You are not the person that the promise was given to. The mystery was that you get to participate with them anyway. Look, as we move into verses 29 through 40, it's important to know that the preceding nights have been aimed at you understanding the foundational promises that form the context for the newer covenant. We're about to read the words newer covenant, and this is what came immediately before it. Sadly, most Christians are ignorant of this truth. They resemble children that stumbled into an all-you-can-eat buffet. They're not expected to pay, and they don't understand the preparation that's involved. They're just there to get what they can get. (laughs) The Bible is not just Israel-centric. It's Israel-dependent. Eliminating Israel, replacing Israel, or God forbid, redefining Israel. It destroys every foundational element of God's plan for mankind revealed in the Bible. To help you visualize the extent to which the newer covenant is about And for Israel, we spent numerous hours on a slide today. 
illustrating the cluster of data points that you have already been taught so that you can recognize what is central to the term new covenant. When you hear the word from new covenant, the new covenant from now on, we want you to visualize this. <laughs> These are those 28 points of review. They have to do with God's name and God's word. And his name is attached to his word. And if you break any part of his word, it would be like breaking apart his character. They have to do with the book of consolation within Jeremiah written for Israel. They have to do with the certainty of the reunification of Israel. This is what the term new covenant is predicated upon. You can't go to the top floor of a building and act like it exists all by itself. It's standing on something. Some brothers in Florida just found that out. (laughs) And if your foundation for the idea of newer covenant is wrong, then all of your theology will crumble. We have a fine way in our time of just summing things up. Like, well, what was the point of all of that? Well, all of the law hangs on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As if that statement excuses everything that went before explains it. It doesn't. It's what it was pointing at. But it doesn't mean that it's okay to go murder someone then. These promises, these cluster of data points are within the term new covenant. They're the things that must happen in the new covenant. And so when we say, well, I'm so glad we're in the new covenant now, you are missing something. The new covenant is absolutely standing on top of all of the promises that went before it. And we're going to hand out a few passages. And we're going to do that because we want your involvement. And also, it's our little subtle way of reminding you to understand the concepts that pervade the New Testament culture. Okay? They were not Christians in the book of Matthew. In fact, that term doesn't come about in history until the middle of the book of Acts, and it's a derogatory term. In today's terms, you would have to have a safe zone to be protected from being called that. The New Testament literally assumes that you understand the principles on that slide. You're going to hear that in these verses. They thought that you would take the time to read the book from the beginning... And not just read the summary statements at the end. They expect you to know it. All right, so we're going to hand out a few passages. And you're going to see that the men that we're reading about in these next few passages had no doubt whatsoever that when it mentioned the newer covenant, it's speaking of everything Jeremiah spoke about. So, uh, JJ, you get Luke 2.25. And uh, Adam Cora, you get Luke 236 through 38. Uh, Nick Rosales, you're going to get Jeremiah 31, 10 through 11. Uh, Rhett, Acts 1, 4 through 6. And Jeremiah 30, 23 through 31, 1 goes to Spencer. Acts 26, 6 through 8 goes to Nolan. Romans 11, 26 through 29 goes to Andrew Hayes, and you're going to have to shout it out back there. Revelation 7, 3 through 8 is going to go to Abimbola, and uh, we'll pick up from there.
All right, before we read these, there's something that's very important to the five sensitive, delicate flowers standing up here. I want everybody to look at our cluster of data points. Are you staring at them? Now show Nick Arizina in some way that you appreciate what he had to do to put that together. Yeah. Now this man, Simeon, or I'll actually say Shimon, we've replaced their names with Gentile names because that's what we did. Shimon was righteous and devout. This is how Luke is opening up his gospel. He is best known in churches because it had been revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Christ. That is what the average Christian knows about him. But how does the Newer Testament, the Brit Chadashah, Introduce him. The answer is that he was a man waiting for the consolation of Israel. Where have you heard that term before? Consolation. Now, I'm going to show you a slide, and I want you to see the Greek term for consolation here. That is 3874 in the Strong's. It is parakesis. Not parakeet. Parakelesis. (laughs) In Luke 2.25, according to the Complete Word Study Dictionary, this is the title of the Messiah. Now, this commentary is saying this is the title of Messiah. Where did he get that? Well, let's see. The consolation of Israel. It is eschatological pointing to him as the one who brings the predicted and long-awaited comfort to Israel. When Simeon Shimon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for the Messiah. Now let's see, if you're wondering why that's important, remember that it comes from Jeremiah in the very same chapters called the Book of Consolation, where we read about the Newer Covenant. I want to show you the Greek Septuagint of Jeremiah. Now it's calling this the New Covenant chapter. And this is Jeremiah chapter... 38 in the LXX, 31 in the Masoretic. So it says... They went out with weeping, and I will bring them back with comfort. In the Septuagint, that's the same word as consolation. I will bring them back with consolation, lodging them by trenches of water on the right path, and they will by no means wander from it. Now, when you open your New Testament to read and come across Shimon, the New Testament assumes that you understand that the promised newer covenant is about the paraclesis, or consolation of Israel and Messiah. So in other words to say, when Shimon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, he is waiting for this passage in Jeremiah to be fulfilled. This was his context when God said he will bring them back with consolation. That's all he knew because he was a Jew who understood Jeremiah. Well, Justin, is that a one-off, man? Not a chance. Yeah, there can't be many of those. Was it just Shimon? Let's, let's go to Luke chapter 2 and read about another one. Luke 2, 36 through 38. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, the tribe of Asher. Real loud, my brother. She was very old. She had lived with her husband <laughs> seven years after her marriage. 
She was so old she was alive in Jeremiah. No, that's not true. <laughs> Why don't you start again and stand up, Adam, because you're a big strapping man and we want to hear what you have to say. There was also a prophet, Anna, the yeah. daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Whoa! She spoke to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I guess it wasn't just Shimon, Justin. Nope. No. I guess there was a whole contingent of Jews there looking forward to that redemption. This particular passage in the Newer Testament, again, is making reference to the phrase redemption of Jerusalem, and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 31. This same chapter, verses 10 through 11. Did we hand that one out, Justin? We did. Yeah, who had it? Hear the word of the Lord, you nation. Proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. I want to highlight verse 11 to you for a moment. For the Lord will ransom Jacob. This is the context of the Jeremiah quote. And the specific Greek words, the numbers are 3084, 3085, in the Septuagint and the Newer Testament. These words are identical. The passages that we just read have the same Greek word through the Septuagint. In Jeremiah, the scattered tribes are being brought back to Jerusalem and ransomed and redeemed there. This is what Anna was talking with her fellow Jews about when she began giving thanks for Jesus. Who is the very ransom and redemption of Israel? Are you guys getting this connection? This is tremendous. You should also take note, because there is much debate about this, that... It's not actually real. It's not. It's debated. It's from Palestinians and weak, liberal uh, Christian professors. And we're going to prove that to you as the string goes on, but we want to drop a hint to you right here that when it says Anna was of the tribe of... Asher. Whoa, I thought they're lost. This is one of the tribes that is supposed to be lost by some biblical scholars. Asher was never a tribe that was lost, and Asher is definitely part of connotative Israel, who has Acts 1, 4 through 6. Let's go, Rhett. Acts 1, 4 through 6. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel, not just Shimon, not just Anna, but also the apostles. They believed that the gospel was ultimately about the restoration of the kingdom to who? Israel. Israel. But again, in the Greek Septuagint, the, the New Testament uses strong numbers. 600 to 600, which is from the root 2525. And this is found in Jeremiah 30, 23 through 31, verse 1. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the 
purpose of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. When the apostles asked about the restoration of the kingdom, the wording they chose is identical to the Greek phrase, fully accomplished. Wow. As in fully accomplished the purposes of his heart. That he would be the God of all the clans of Israel, and that, that, that they would be his people. Who has Acts 26? 6 through 8. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, lest you thought in the last passage in Acts that that hope was just hope deferred. Paul still had that hope very much alive that Israel would be restored. Should be clear to you at this point that the New Testament hope is not different from the hope of Jeremiah. That Israel would be restored by God's divine power. Paul had the same hope derived from the Tanakh as the righteous fathers before him had. He wasn't a heretic. In the exact same flow of the fathers who came before him, you understood the scripture. Namely, that all 12, somebody say all 12. All 12. That all 12 tribes would experience the resurrection from the dead as the Messiah, who was the first fruits of their nation, did. Okay, so we're going to, of course, have one of you read Romans eleven twenty six. But before we do that, I just, I want to get back to this summation problem. Sometimes the newer covenant is described as, wow, well, you know, the whole point of the newer covenant is that this is no longer ethnocentric, no longer about just Israel, it's about the rest of the world, for God so loved the world. And that is true. But that doesn't mean that all of the promises to Israel are now null and void. In fact, if they are null and void, then you could never trust the promises to the rest of the world. They're interconnected. Everything about the newer covenant begins in the older. In fact... The older promises extend through the end of the Newer Testament, and all of the Newer Testament is written out of the Older Testament. It's actually one book. It's one God. It's one unchanging deliverance of His Word. We'll get into that more as we go, but let's go ahead and do Romans 11, 26 through 29. Who had it? And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come. I, I don't know. What is your interpretation of so all Israel will be saved? You would be shocked. You would be shocked how many interpretations of that verse there are. Okay? I wish that they understood what they so confidently affirm. But they do not, just as they didn't in Paul's day. Okay? So all Israel, if, if all Israel has always meant the 12 tribes... Why would you assume it means something other than the 12 tribes when we're reading it in Romans 11? Okay, It's faithlessness. It's, that's all it is. Let's pick back up, Andrew, and I'll let you read a little further this time. And then I'll interrupt you again. Yeah. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Hey, who is the covenant with? Israel. 
I just want you to know the context of that passage is the new covenant. But let's keep going. Yeah. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. It doesn't matter what it looks like in the present. There is always hope for Israel. This is the gift of God to Israel. Amen. And it's a mystery that we get to be a part of it. But we do. Amen. Us being a part of it does not eliminate or replace them. When Paul is writing Romans 11 and he makes the declaration, all Israel will be saved. The passages that he uses to support his claim come from what you have come to know as the book of consolation. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. Specifically, your, your Bible will probably even shockingly get that right. There'll be a little footnote down there. This is because the New Testament takes it completely for granted that you understand the new covenant is about the salvation of Israel first and foremost. That's actually how Paul opened his letter to the Romans. Salvation first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Look, it doesn't stop there, though. We're going to go to Revelation, which is at the very end of the Bible. Who's got Revelation 7, 3 through 8? It says this. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Those Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> no. no. Mormons, Mormons. Mormons. From the tribe of Judah. They'll all get to shovel coal with the Pope, you know, but I'm sorry. What were you reading? From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now, it's pretty ironic how many mystical interpretation of these enigmatic verses yeah. there are. What is in the Peshat is that every tribe of Israel is represented before the throne of God in the book of Revelation. Amen. It is true that there are many other nations there as well. But take note, there's only one named nation. Yeah. That's Israel. The New Testament takes it for granted that you understand this. Yeah. And look, y'all didn't show enough appreciation for that. Yeah. In all of the commentaries that you read on Revelation... Almost all of them somehow delineate blessings for you and difficulties for Israel. They're missing something. The only nation actually named at the throne of God is Israel. Yeah. Other nations are there, but Israel's the only one that is delineated as being there. Yeah. Now notice we just gave you an entire scripture string out of the Newer Testament. And what we did with that is we showed you how it tied exactly to the book of Jeremiah, namely chapters 30 and 31. Now, when you understand that, it's a little bit difficult to say that it was all fulfilled in Jesus, right? When he came the first time. You can't say that because what they were expecting were those 28 
cluster of data points when they were expecting the newer covenant. This just goes to show that we still have a little bit left to be fulfilled. Like Jesus might come a second time and permanently plant his people. On that note, because we're about to let Nick expound on this text. Some of this has to do with just a, a Western reading of an Eastern book. When we see something as fulfilled, we see it as like kaput, done, like stored away somewhere in grandma's basement, it's done. That is not how Jews look at fulfillment. Fulfillment is when something has been initiated that God said, and it will come to pass. The new covenant has both come, is still coming, and will be complete at some point in the future. If you doubt that at all, then go play with cobras and try to lay down with a a wolf. I mean, it hasn't happened, okay? But it has been initiated, and we know that it will be completed. That's the point. So all of these promises in the Older Testament are initiated in Christ, but they are not complete. We know that based on watching the news every evening. Israel is not the throne of God today with all the nations streaming to it saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, a fifth of the world's population is dedicated to the destruction of Israel openly, admittedly. Okay? Let's get into our verses for tonight. Are y'all excited about that? We're going to go to the newer covenant, y'all. That's exciting. We're going to get into these verses tonight, right now, and Linton is going to kick us off in verse 29, and Linton, I'm going to stop you after 29, because we got some stuff to talk about. (laughs) Anybody want some sour grapes? (laughs) In those days, people would no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So first and foremost, before we get into a scripture stream on this passage, I want you to note that we're saying in those days, not specifically in that day or on that day, particularly one day, but we're saying in those days, like the days leading up to that one day, like the end times that come to a culmination in those days. The people will no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Repentance for Israel is going to grow in time. This should take your mind back to that sieve concept that we've been talking about. There's going to be a sieve, and the nation of Israel is going to be funneled through it. And the penitent ones are going to be the ones that remain. People have been saying for generations that their problems came from their fathers. (laughs) But we want to tell you tonight that this is just not true. According to this scripture, this is not true. How many times have you heard, well, you know, my mama did this, so that's why I act like this today. Or, you know, I didn't have a daddy. You know, I grew up in that neighborhood over there, and that's the reason why I still deal with this. Oh, pastor, one time a leaf blew in the window, and I've just never been the same since... It was damaging! (laughs) I'm 35 years old now. It's poison ivy. We want to take you through a small scripture string, and we want to highlight the way that the first century Jews preached as they came into ministry and as they preached to the people. Are you guys interested in that? This is going to help all of us to clear up any of that, those leftovers that we might have about where we came from or what depravity that, that we were exposed to that now we're still trying to deal with it. 
We want to deal with some leftovers tonight. You guys ready? Have you ever read that we have to go through many trials, toils, and tribulations to enter the kingdom of God? Yes. Yeah. Strangely, the apostles found that statement encouraging. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> if Israel has to go through a sieve that removes those that are supposed to be sons of God, but are not actually behaving like sons of God, I'm sure you'll escape the same kind of testing sieve, oh. won't you? Oh. No, you'd have to find a fictional author writing left behind kind of series to get that idea. Wow. You know, there was a particular man named John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3 for you. In those days, John the Baptist came. Those days. Those days. And he was preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent. Teshuvah. For the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We wanted to start with this verse because John the Baptist, the first words out of his mouth according to the scriptures, repent. Repent was how he started his vocational ministry. Since national repentance is a prerequisite for achieving God's plan for Israel, Repentance is repent or repentance. The action is always among the first words preached throughout the gospel narratives. Peyton is going to read Matthew 4, and we're going to keep going on this concept. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Let me know when you're there. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, or Capernaum. Get it. Yeah. Get it. Yeah. Yeah. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, impressed. Yeah. <laughs> right. He was by the lake in the area of Zebulun to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Zebulun. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea among the Jordan, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Amen. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Mm. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Yeah. See, both Jesus and John the Immerser preached repentance because Jeremiah predicted natural repentance in Israel. Are you guys seeing that? Yeah. Wow. Yes. This happened in small part. It will happen in mass. Come on. Notice again that Jesus set up his ministry in the tribal allotment of the northern tribes. He most likely did this because Isaiah and Jeremiah predicted the return of all the clans of Israel. Listen, Pastor Eric made a profound statement that the Bible and the story is not just Israel-centric. It is Israel-dependent. And let me iterate this for just a moment to put it on, uh, make it little more at home, some better footing, because it's already on good footing. If I build my home, and I say, we have a Christ-centered home, well, that sounds noble. It's a pretty good statement. But I think the statement opens you up to other things to influence you. It's much different for me to express, no, my home is Christ-dependent. Nothing happens unless Christ is directing it. Christ is helping me. Christ is leading me through everything that I do. 
I think that nuance is very important. And if we view the Bible and the narrative that way, it changes how we interpret scriptures and keeps us from coming to dangerous conclusions. Israel is central. Luke, as we pick up in Luke 13, where Judah is going to read for us, there's a key point here. Repentance had to be preached in Israel first. Had to be, period. Because that's the initiation of this new planting of God. Not only did it have to be preached first there, the last thing to happen before the world is healed is that Israel in mass as a whole actually repents. The newer covenant is dependent upon this, and you can't remove it from you wouldn't know what repentance was if it were not for the yeah. nation of Israel for and the sure. book that God gave them to give you. Yeah. I'm reading a book on Roman history right now, and a man runs into a Christian, and the Christian is telling him to repent. And he has no idea what it means. Like, repent of what? It's all just natural. Yeah. See, you don't realize what you've inherited. And because we don't realize it, we don't appreciate those from whom we've inherited it. Let's go on the topic of repentance to Luke 13. Luke 13. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, we're not teaching the context tonight, but on the subject of buildings falling. It tends to be a consistent, natural, sinful, out-of-the-mind-of-Christ thought that when something bad happens, it must be because they're worse than you. Now, it's very interesting how Jesus responds, because this is Luke 13, and uh, you know, I was beginning to get the idea it was just Matthew that recorded all this repentance stuff. <laughs> I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Uh-huh. And we always wish to place that upon someone else. You see this in the southern tribes in Israel. They're like, oh, no, man, that's <laughs> the north. And then the Lord says, no, you both must repent, and I will restore you together. The only way to achieve national salvation is through personal repentance. You don't get a nation without that Spirit of God working on hearts. Now, verse 4. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus is expounding upon the promise that the false proverb would disappear. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and their children's teeth are set on edge. I.e., the idea that this is someone else's fault, and it is coming upon me, and I'm a victim. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Jesus is teaching that personal repentance is required Of every Israelite, at the introduction of Jesus' ministry, the coming, the beginning of the new covenant, repentance is the message. This is the path to national repentance. And it avoids the coming sieve or winnowing fork that will happen throughout the land and people. Our nation's got problems, right? And most of them are on the left coast. But you, too, will perish if you do not repent. Okay? If you want a national movement of any kind, it has to start with individuals. Okay? That is the basic concept here. 
But the promise is that it will arrive in national salvation for one nation on earth, Israel. That's Jeremiah's claim. And it's not just Jeremiah's claim, it's the claim of the entire Bible. I want to read to you from Acts 3.17. Now, brothers, I know, and by the way, it's a Jew speaking to Jews. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The context is one Israelite talking to other Israelites about what will happen to Israel when Israel repents. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Amen. As he promised long ago through the holy prophets. See, it's clear that Jeremiah places as a preamble to the new covenant that Israel grow in awareness and personal responsibility for sin. And this is what the apostles preached. And they preached it to Israel before anyone else. Let's pick up in verse 30, Mr. Lanton. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. When you're reading this, you are reading the sieve and the sword. This is exactly what's happening when the sieve and the sword come. It's removing unrepentant sinners from among the people in those days. Each man is dying for his own sin. And guess what? Another contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, said the same thing would happen in chapter 18. He's making the same prediction that a day is going to come where everyone will die for their own sin. They will be weeded out if they're not repentant. Now, it seems like bad news if you're a sinner. But if you're repentant, this leads up to the day When the penitent ones look upon the one pierced and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. They will all be saved as Jeremiah and Romans 11 declare. This is how that happens. And this is why the first words out of Jesus mouth was repent. They wanted to get to this point as fast as they could. So let's pick up in verse 31 and we're going to hear the Brit Chadashah. I will make a new covenant. Who is the new covenant with again? Yeah, but what does this verse say? Okay. The, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Both houses of Israel. You know what that means? That means that you, you over there, you over there, me right here, we were all mystery. Even those guys in the back. A mystery. <laughs> That means we were all a mystery, but both houses of Israel were always in the Peshat. We want to do something. We want to put that 28 cluster points of data chart diagram, huge monstrosity back on the screen for a second. We, We wanted to point a couple of things out to you as we were talking about the new covenant. Look to the left in the middle of the screen for a moment. You have a woman will surround a man. 
Do we have that today yet? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe in Caitlyn Jenner, but that's an Antichrist <laughs> version. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Praise the Lord for, uh, for last week and the week before that in that study. We don't have that present today yet. So that, that means that we don't have the new covenant in its completion yet. We're not living in the new covenant as a culmination. What about under that? That circle under there, a new thing. Permanent planting of salvation and deliverance for Israel. Do we have that yet? No, no we don't have that yet. What about the right of the screen? Great guilt acknowledged and atoned by the nation of Israel. Do we have these things yet? No. no. We, we wanted to highlight this because one of the main things that you can do with this chart is you can look and you can see these 28 points that we went through for these four weeks prior to this. And you can read these and in, in, in your mind you can go back through the things that we studied and understand every single point is leading up to a culminative a cumulative period in the new covenant that is coming. Amen. From this point, Peyton, I think you should lead us through Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to run through this and see what this means for Israel and what this means for the Gentiles. There are a couple of beautiful things coming. So uh, you've invested, I don't know how many weeks in this up to this point. This makes our fifth special week in Jeremiah. I kind of think they've all been special. But you're going to want to pay attention to this because we, we dug deep. So everyone get to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 2. Which nation did God give his promises to? Israel. We were a mysterious inclusion. In light of that, as I read, I'll add some emphasis to help us out. Verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, Israel, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, Israel, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us, Israel, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, Israel, in the one he loves. In him, we, Israel, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That he lavished on us, Israel, with all wisdom and understanding. Yeah. He made known to us, Israel, are you catching the flow here? Yeah. The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring what? all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we, Israel, were also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, Israel, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now listen up. And you, Gentiles, we made it! You also were included in Christ. 
salvation. Having believed, you Gentiles were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our Israel inheritance. This is so fun. <laughs> Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Someone say amen. amen. Now listen, these things were destined for Israel. You were included in their redemption. Praise the Lord. The apostle goes on to pray this for the Gentiles in Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 19. Listen up. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We need more enlightenment, and the world needs an exponential amount of enlightenment. He didn't have that cluster chart. (laughs) So he had to pray their eyes would be enlightened. (laughs) In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We also pray that you are beginning to appreciate the mysterious inclusion into what was their exclusive destiny. Come on. Amen. Church, you've been included in something that is amazing. It doesn't diminish you in any way to recognize that this was not about you, and yet he so loved you, he's included you. Okay. It also clears up centuries of terrible Christian doctrine. As we're going to verse 32, building on that point that we just made, not only does it not diminish you, it ought to give you an idea, as Paul was saying here, of how special it is that you are a witness of this covenant. It ought to give you a sense of obligation, an urgency, a desire to share with the entire world what has been done for you. If you pray, as Paul suggested, that the eyes of your heart might be open to this, I promise it will change your walk. <laughs> yes. You yes. think eschatology and reading Jeremiah has nothing to do with your workday tomorrow? I beg the differ. <laughs> Spend a little time searching the heart of God for his people and what he is doing on the earth through you right now, and you will come alive. Come on. Let's go to verse... I just looked up, and I happened to catch Assad's eye. Come I on. can't help it. Assad, the lion of God. I mean, it's like a magnet. I'm drawn Imagine, Assad would never do this because he's a well-disciplined man. But imagine that he stopped to get a 40 and a scratch-off. And in his scratch-off, I know it's it's unthinkable, isn't it? Yes. That's why I picked Assad and not some of you. (laughs) And in his scratch-off, I don't know how that works, he wins the Powerball. It's it's millions of dollars. Assad won it. He didn't do anything special to merit it. He, it was just something that happened to Assad. But Assad said, you're my family. I love you guys. You're all winners. I'm going to split it up with you. It's Assad's inheritance, and you have become a co-inheritor with him because you were included. It would be wrong for you to walk around and say, you know what? I won the Powerball. No, you did not. (laughs) Is the Powerball a thing? Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I digress. (laughs) Help me, Linton. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This evening, it's not going to be hard to drive into the ground the 
that the original covenant was good and beautiful. You know why it's not hard? Because the scripture does it constantly. But we're talking about something that is a change of internal motivation. Something in them will cause them to relate to the Lord and his wonderful law differently. The bride here is unable to walk faithfully. But there is a cure that the good father has in store. That the groom has in store. It's called his spirit. And he will put it inside her so that she desires what he does. Paul comments on this in Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers... We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Look, I'm not going to digress here, but when he says by the Spirit, he means by the Spirit. He he doesn't mean just willpower. He means his Spirit (laughs) dwelling in you richly will cause you to overcome sin. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You hear the same concept there? Yeah. Yeah. This covenant will not be broken because it has the means to empower men to obedience beyond sin. The whole point is that they're becoming like the one who gave them the spirit. Moses is a blessing because his revelation always was meant for course correction and instruction for the nation of Israel and those who were added. The newer covenant is a blessing because it provides the internal power to walk in obedience to the righteousness of God. Amen. Can we elaborate on that? Yeah. Yes. Let's read John 1, 16 and 17. And if you're reading to King Jimmy, King Jimmy was wrong. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, a blessing. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, another blessing. See, the older and the newer are both blessings from the same father. They're actually given to the same nation. In fact, what is called the newer starts in the older. We're reading it in Jeremiah 31. Even the older promises carry through the very end of the newer covenant book. You've been discovering that in Revelation 21. This is one contiguous work. But there was an issue, an issue always. It's not just an ancient issue. It's an issue today. The major issue in the uncircumcised hearts in every Jewish and Gentile generation is resistance to the spirit of holiness. We're going to walk you through a little bit of Stephen's discourse. We want you to hear how he starts at the beginning and he goes through all the generations of his nation and what he says is profound. So this is in Acts chapter 7 starting in verse 37 and you Acts students ought to remember this. It says, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. 
He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass to us. Sounds like Stephen had a pretty high view of the older covenant. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, why is Stephen starting at the, at the very beginning of the book? It's because they're rejecting him right now, and he's telling them, you're rejecting the newer covenant, which is initiated now, but it's because you've always rejected the covenants of God ever since the beginning. Now, check out Acts 7, 51 through 52. He gets to the root of the problem here. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Man, it's almost like he's pointing them back to Deuteronomy 28 when God would circumcise their hearts. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the terms that the newer covenant are based on. Now, Stephen is clearly illustrating here that the promises of the older were not bad. Why would he even bring it up if they were bad? The promises of the newer are better. They're even better. They're good. They're better. The issue at hand is the perpetual resistance to the spirit of holiness. And get this. In Stephen's mind, all of these covenants are connected as one. That's why he goes through Moses, David, all the way to the Holy Spirit. See, you view a covenant as a contract because you're a Western person. And you only have a second contract is if the first contract is now not applicable. These fit inside of each other. They further each other. One being better just reveals more divine enablement. It doesn't make what went before it wrong. Because God's nature and God's word are linked. He could no more deny his word than he can deny himself. Now, Jews in every generation have and do yield to the spirit of holiness. Stephen is one of them, but he's speaking to men who do not yield to the spirit of holiness. You know what that tells us? The new covenant hasn't been entirely fulfilled in Stephen's day. He's working on it, though. But check out verse 55, and this is the best. Yeah, this is, this, we're not going to lie. This is very good, what you're about to hear. But Stephen... Full of the Holy Spirit. Yes! He was. Looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, for the men he's speaking to, they're not walking in the Brit Hadashah. But Stephen is walking in the Brit Hadashah. You want to know how I know? Because you see two Jews being united in the spirit of holiness and loving not their lives unto death. The spirit of holiness is interjecting those men and causing them to move. And Stephen's looking at the mediator of the new covenant. And together they're not loving their lives unto death. Okay, so Jesus, Son of God. We all got that. We're not going to argue it tonight. Because it's true. You, you can argue, but you'll be wrong. He's also a Jewish man. A Jewish man on earth full of the Holy Ghost is staring at a Jewish man standing at the right hand of God. 
That's the initiation of the newer covenant, my friend. That's the very thing. Where it's going to end up is with the nation standing at the throne of God. This is what's known as first fruits. Yeah, the Jewish man is seeing him from afar. And what comes next is the Jewish nation will see him from afar standing with God. Verse 33. that we've been talking about for a few weeks now. Guess what? That's Israel. It's called the New Jerusalem. (laughs) So it's not Norwegian. That is Israel. You were the the mystery. You and I were the one who were the mysterious inclusion into their plan. Even at the culmination of this thing in Revelation 21, it's still all about Israel. In fact, you and I wouldn't even know about any of this if it were not for a Jew named Shaul and another one named Kepha. Yeah, we pronounced Saul, Saul or Paul of Tarsus. We pronounced his name in Hebrew and we also pronounced uh, Peter's name in Hebrew because the context demands it. It's so easy just to go through the word and read these the transliterations that we have in the English language and put it in, in, in English and all about England and all about us, all about our nation, all about our part of the world. Guys, this is not about us at all. We were the mysterious inclusion. We've already covered Revelation 20. We've already covered Revelation 21 in some depth, but you should research those two chapters on your own time and look for Israel in them. What about verse 34? No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me. Hey, who does all refer to? All Israel. All Israel. Israel. Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Someone say amen. Amen. So when he says all, who is he referring to? All Israel. This is Israel in the connotative sense. When it says they will all, he means all Israel. This is what Paul quotes in Romans 11. And realize they have the law written on their heart. Come on. They are inwardly motivated Amen. to follow its decrees. It has been internalized in them. And the Lord has led them to this. It says, I will be their God and they, Israel, will be my people. Amen. It is the ultimate accomplishment. This yeah. is Revelation 21. Now, we know the story is a wedding, but we could also say that it's a war story. Yeah. I often view it as a wedding for a warrior. Yeah. A warrior who is coming back from war and getting married. And this is the bride and groom narrative that we see. It says they will know, yada, each other. Yeah. They have become one, not engaged, but consummated. Yes. Yeah! Oh, Tisdale, why didn't you give an amen? Amen! Revelation 19 is the wedding And Revelation 21 Is after the consummation This is accomplished by the Preceding cleansing and looking Upon the one they pierced that we discussed At night 3 this is from Jeremiah 30 verses 22 through 31 
verse 14. You guys remember 9-3? Yeah. Yeah. Remember that he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Yes. This is when all Israel is saved and all curses are removed. With such a great promise, how can Israel know that it will occur? Isn't that a good question? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With such a grandiose promise, how can they know it will occur? Anybody want to stand up and answer that? <laughs> good. Because that's where we're going to focus the last 30 minutes of our study. In an effort to continue to build that just a little bit. He said that no man will need to teach them because they will all know the Lord. Anybody in the room catch that? Yeah. yeah. Now imagine that on a practical level for just a moment. I see some pastors and elders in the room. An entire nation of people that no longer need to be instructed by the Lord. We go back to our wedding scenario though. It's not uncommon for an immature or insecure man to ask a friend, hey, what does she think about me? Does she like this? What do you think she would want to do on this Friday night? What's her favorite food? Because he doesn't know her. This is describing a day when the wife and the husband have become one and there is no need for anyone else to speak of it. They know each other better than anyone else anywhere they have become completely one under heaven. Oh, yeah. See, we're professing something now, but it is not quite the reality of where we're going. As we get into these next few verses, you're going to see things that are symbols of what is to come and will be fulfilled in light of that kind of unification. Pick up in 35 for me, brother. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. And you thought your engagement ring was nice, Tisdale, but the Lord just kind of won up to you there, didn't he? He who appoints the sun to shine by day. Man, we're concerned about a rock sparkling, and he hung the sun in the sky. Like the things that were appointed in Genesis 1 were appointed at the same time that the lamb was slain, before the creation of the world itself. I want you to consider this for just a moment. The beginning of our world as we know it is not necessarily the beginning. There was something that took place even before the sun was hung in the sky. Israel has been in the mind of God since he created the heavens and the earth. Since before he gave his proposal, he had his engagement ring ready, his witnesses, his signs. Revelation 13, 8 says this, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. You guys hear that for a moment? Now, I'm going to throw back to Exodus 12, 5. We now have to turn there, but it speaks about a lamb that has to be one free of defect. One that has to be perfect and has to be pure. The 21st verse of the same chapter goes on to say, that lamb for atonement, yeah, it can't be from someone else's flock. It has to be from your flock. Israelite. Wow. So it has to be a perfect lamb that would come specifically from Israel. Hey, 
Who selected the Passover lambs? Israel. Israelites had to. An Egyptian couldn't do it. An Israelite had to do it. Well, let this settle on you for a minute. Consider the implications, then, of a Barabbas in Jesus scenario. Man, I love the way that that's always painted. It's wicked Jews. true on a personal level, but have you ever considered the degree to which the entirety of the Tanakh speaks about a perfect lamb that must be chosen from Israel and must be selected by Israel from their own flock? I Was know. Barabbas a perfect, untainted lamb? Oh. No, he wasn't. So what had to be selected? What by the God's design from the creation of the world, as Revelation said, that a perfect lamb from Israel, by Israel, had to be chosen that day? Now I want you to think through that, because you've always thought it was atrocious that Barabbas was set free and Jesus was sacrificed. But it was God's plan from the beginning. Now, I don't know whether it's hit you yet, but I always wondered how Jeremiah and Revelation 13 could say what they say. Revelation 13 literally says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, creation of the world. The implication here that you get when you read Jeremiah is, oh, God, he's big, God's big, so he made the son, he can do it. That's not it at all. That's... That's not even close to it. It's much deeper than that. It's actually saying that when he made the son, he already had in mind to do this. And we're gonna we're gonna expand that for you a little bit, okay? Yeah. Amen. And look, I we'll explain it to you now, and hopefully you'll understand it later, right? But it's beautiful. We're gonna roll through a few New Testament scriptures to warm you up a little bit. And then we're going to go into Jewish cultural references to help you. Okay? This is Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Well, how far back did he foreknow them? And how far back did he predestined them? We're suggesting to you that it's before he put the sun in the sky or the moon in the sky. And that when he put the sun and the moon in the sky... He only did that because they would serve his purposes for what he would accomplish for Israel. Okay? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, as far back as the sun in the sky, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That is the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. But it's also the story of the nation that they founded. And just like God called those patriarchs into being, he had in mind to bring Israel forth from before the time that he set the stellar realm in its place. And so he is pointing backwards to the stellar realm going, how can you know I'm going to do this for you? It gets even better. Uh, take us through Ephesians real quick. Or so, yeah. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. Who was us? Israel. He chose Israel in him before the creation of the world. You remember when we said that the Bible is Israel dependent? That means that the entire Bible hangs on what God chose and determined would happen from the beginning. He chose his nation Israel. He chose his Messiah that would be a lamb for Israel from the beginning. And you already know the end of the story. You get to be a recipient from that. It has to stem from the creation of the world. He chose us and him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He didn't choose them to be lost tribes. He didn't choose them to fall away and lose his promises. He chose them to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's how Paul can write Romans eleven twenty six. All right, for time's sake, you write down Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. You'll find the very same principle there. And Nick, help us with a cultural teaching. We, we have this collection called Legends of the Jews, and I'm sure it will undoubtedly offend some people that we would even read from that. But it's millennia of stories of Jews sitting around at Sabbath talking about the meaning of Torah. And they're written down for us. And I want you to hear some of their conversation. This was translated by a German, because he was smart enough to do it. And uh, his name is Ginsberg. And we're going to read it to you. We don't have those as slides, do we, Beth? Yeah. Oh, we do. Good. See, we have a good pastoral staff here. Let's show you the first one on a slide. Nick, help us with it. So I'm going to read this first one to you, this first excerpt from Legends of the Jews. This is entitled Jewish Cultural Teaching. We're going to start here. The whole world, naturally, was created for the pious, the God-fearing man, whom Israel produces with the helpful guidance of the law of God revealed to him. It was, therefore, Israel who was taken into special consideration at the time man was made. Now, before you look at that and you go, oh, well, that's just a Jewish legend, understand that Paul said the same thing. Yeah. He chose us in him, the us is Israel, the him is Christ, before he created the world. So it can't just be a Jewish legend. Come on. This is going to get so much better. Excuse that next slide. For the sake of Israel, I will create the world as I shall make a division between light and darkness. So I will in time to come do for Israel and Egypt. Thick darkness shall be over the land, and the children of Israel shall have light in their dwelling. As I shall make a separation between the waters under the firmament and the waters above the firmament, so I will do for Israel. I will divide the waters for him when he crosses the Red Sea. Do you guys see what's happening here? He's actually walking through the days of creation and telling us why the Lord did what he did with the earth's creation. Why he created the way that he did. And he's pointing back to events in Israel's history where they would need every single step of creation throughout their history. He did it for them from the beginning. Everything Nick just said is good. But it is even better than that. The days of creation contain the supernatural events in the same order 
as they're unveiled in Israel's history. We just did day one of creation where light and darkness are separated. And this is one of the first events that happens where darkness is over the land in Egypt, but there's light in Goshen. Then day two where waters are separated, which is what happens when Israel is coming out of Egypt. Then he's going to day three, Peyton. I will bring forth manna for him in the wilderness, as I shall create luminaries to divide the day from night. So I will do for Israel. I will go before him by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. Is that familiar? Yeah. As I shall create the fowl of the air and the fishes of the sea, so I will do for Israel. I will bring quail, quails for him from the sea. And as I shall breathe the breath of life into the nostrils of man, so I will do for Israel. I will give the Torah unto him, the tree of life. These men had an extraordinary revelation that is foundational to what we should believe. God always did it for who? Israel. Finally, the goodness of God manifests itself in the preservation of his people, Israel. Now, did you hear that statement? The goodness of God manifests itself in the preservation of his people, Israel. So if he didn't do for for them what he said he would do, what would that call into question? Okay. Now, we're only pointing this out to you, not because we're Israeli nationalists. I mean, I am a Zionist. But I, I want you to be sure I'm a pork-eating Gentile as well, okay? It's because the Bible is Israel-dependent. And a perverted view, a redefined view, an overly spiritualized view of Israel distorts your view of God's entire plan. And we want you to get this right. Are you ready? Because it gets even better. And we... We have 14 minutes to cover, I don't know, a few millennia of, of beautiful things. Have you ever been curious why in Genesis it says that it set these things as a sign? Why all throughout the Tanakh, seeing the sun rise again is a sign of his coming hope, healing, and restoration? It's because from the very beginning, it was for Israel, as we are attached to it. I'm going to read a few excerpts from Jubilees. I'm not sure exactly what we have on the slide, but if you have, no problem whatsoever. Let's go ahead and throw the first one up. I'll pick up with you. This is rather uh, voluminous, but it's worth it. <laughs> we have a large body of text. I'm going to hit some of the larger points for you and give you some context in the beginning. So Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And God taught him the earlier and the later history of the divisions of all the days of the law and the testimony. Earlier and later. And he said, incline thine heart to every word which I shall speak to thee on this mountain, and write them in a book in order that their generations may see how I have not forsaken them. For all the evil which they have brought in transgressing the covenant which I established between me and thee for their generations this day on Mount Sinai. So our current context is about future and past tense revelation. 
and as a sign, a monument, that I have not forsaken them despite the things that are currently going on. I'm going to pick up in verse 8, as you can see on the slide. And they will eat and be satisfied, and they will turn to strange gods, to gods which cannot deliver them from aught of their tribulation. And this witness shall be heard for a witness against them, for they will forget all my commandments, even all that I commanded them. And they will walk after the Gentiles and after their uncleanness and after their shame and will serve their gods. And these will prove to them an offense and a tribulation and an affliction and a snare. It's speaking in advance about the condition of Israel. When we're seeing things like no remedy, what Jeremiah is prophesying all of the chapters up to this point, it forewarns that it will happen. But it began by saying in advance, no matter what you see, I have not forsaken them. Yeah. These things will come to pass. As you keep going down, I'm going to pick up in verse 12 now. And I will send witnesses unto them that I may witness against them, but they will not hear and they will slay the witnesses also. Ever heard from the blood of Zechariah, Abel to Zechariah? We don't need to survey the prophets to see how true this is. 13, and I will hide my face from them. And I will deliver them into the hand of the Gentiles for captivity. What has Jeremiah been prophesying about for all of these chapters up to the point that we're in? And for a prey and for devouring. Oh, Remember hearing about how these Gentile nations are going to devour Israel, yeah. Yeah. but then be devoured. Hey, I'm going to hit 15 now. And after this, okay, so after what? After everything I just read to you. They will turn to me from among the Gentiles with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. I will gather them from among all the Gentiles and they will seek me so that I shall be found of them when they seek me with all their heart and with all their soul. Wow. I will disclose to them abounding peace with righteousness and I will remove them the plant of right rightness with all my heart and with all my soul. And they shall be for me a blessing and not a curse. And they shall be the head and not the tail. I will build my sanctuary in their midst, and I will dwell with them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people in truth and righteousness. And I will not forsake them nor fail them, for I am the Lord their God. In the next few verses, Moses is going to fall down and flee in this passage in Jubilees. And he's going to ask that they would not sin and fall away. Verse 21 is the Lord's response. But they are thy people and thy inheritance. I apologize. Lord's response is coming. But they are thy people and thy inheritance, which thou hast delivered with great power from the hands of the Egyptians. Create in them a clean heart and a holy spirit. This is Moses' request to the Lord. And let them not be ensnared in their sins from henceforth until eternity. And the Lord said unto Moses, I know their contrariness and their thoughts and their stiff-neckedness. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and they will not be obedient till they confess their own sin and the sin of their fathers. So have you ever been reading Deuteronomy and you read blessings and curses, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? Yeah. And we tend to read those blessings and curses like, if you do this, then this will happen. And if you do that, this will happen. That's not really what they are. They're prophecies. 
They're saying when you do this, this will happen. And when you do this, this will happen. And both would occur in Israel's history. And God knew it in advance, which is why it's in the book. He created the entire world system to plant Israel in it. And then within Israel, a fresh planting of salvation, deliverance, they would heal the world. And look at this. This is, this is just Jewish discussion, okay? But I, I want you to catch verse 23. And after this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart and with all their soul. And I will circumcise the foreskin of their heart and the foreskin of the heart of their seed. And I will create in them a holy spirit. And I will cleanse them so that they shall not turn away from me from that day unto eternity. And their souls will cleave to me and all my commandments and they will fulfill my commandments and I will be their father and they shall be my children. And they shall all be called children of the living God and every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness that I have loved them. Wow. Now, maybe you think this is just legend, and I get that, but where did they derive it? From reading Jeremiah. Okay, this is the cultural understanding of what the new covenant would bring for Israel. And it was a mystery that we could be included in it. And the whole concept that there would be a rejection and then a second coming, that was foreseen as far back as the book of Enoch. And it's not scripture. That's not the point. The point is Jews had been discussing it for many, many, many millennia. It's not as if any of this caught God by surprise. He knows his people. And he knows how to bring them to salvation. And he loved us enough to include us in what he was doing for them. How can we know that these promises will come about, Lord, and Israeli speaking? Look up at the sun and the moon. I told you that the creation speaks forth my glory day and night in a language that all men can understand. I hung those things up there for you. Because I knew that you would need water separated. I knew that you would need light at night and light in the day. I knew what you needed before you needed. And I'm telling you that I will bring you to national salvation. Can you imagine what an offense it would be to God to not believe that he could do that? Simply because for some number of centuries it didn't look like it could happen. See, I don't want to be in that camp. The newer covenant is all about God fulfilling all of his promises, first and foremost to Israel and then to the Jews. By the way, we have maybe six minutes and we have a ton of material. So we just want to give you a highlight from Isaiah 43. So Isaiah 43 is a a conversation that's being had. And as you listen to this, think about what you just heard. All the nations gathered together. Verse 9, all the nations gathered together and the peoples assembled. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that the others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant 
whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. So God is saying that I'm the one who's proclaimed the former things. I am the one that has chosen you from the beginning as my servants. No other God has done this. This is the majesty of our God that he has proclaimed for former things to his servants. Look, he calls them his witnesses. Do you know what the sun and the moon were called? Witnesses. They are witnesses that God formed this for Israel. And Israel is witnesses that God will do what he said he would do through their entire life. That's why it's become so important for us to explain to you, not just Israel-centric, Israel-dependent. Because if he doesn't do it for Israel, you have no hope. Okay? Look, we want to get back to verse 36. Mr. Lenton, would you help us with that? Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Wow. This is incredible. What, what an incredible singular statement. After learning all that you did about creation, after learning all that you did about the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world, after learning that Israel as a nation was in God the Father's mind before he even started creation, for him to say, yeah, and if all these things vanish only at that point, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me? Well, doesn't that take on a, a whole different context now that you know the background to it? Of course he's saying that because everything was created for them. The lamb was already slain for them because he was able to anticipate the needs of the nation that they were going to have before they were even a, a physical, visible nation on the planet. He couldn't have a lamb slain before the creation of the world if there would not be a nation that he would tell to choose lambs. <laughs> right. For an exodus. Right. Okay? What this shows you about your God is that he knows the end from the beginning and he planned for it before the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very big God, don't yeah. you think? Yes. So we want to run through, I, I'm just going to tell you what these two passages say in light of this scripture. Genesis 1.14 through 19 talks about that part of creation where the Lord has, is creating lights and expanse of the sky to separate night and day and to serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Also in Revelation 13 and verse 8, it's a passage that we just read. I want to reiterate it to you. All whose names have not been written in the book of life, the inhabitants are going to of the earth are going to worship. Oh, I'm sorry. The inhabitants of the earth are going to worship the beast, those whose names are not written into the Lamb's book of life. But it says the Lamb who is slain from the creation of the world. That's Revelation 13, 8, so that you guys can write that down as we keep going. What about verse 37, Linton? This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So he will never reject all Israel. But remember, there's a sifting that goes on prior. 
The reason he does this is because everything hangs on the completion of the promises that date all the way back to the foundations of the earth being laid. The penitent ones that we've been talking about for weeks, they are who become all Israel. And there are penitent Gentiles that are the mysterious conclusion. Inclusion. What follows in the, the next verses is a literal description of the figurative city that we see in Revelation 21. Brother Linton, can you read verse 38? So ca- catch this as he, as he finishes this. What, you're, what you read in Revelation is a city with the foundation of 12 apostles. You see a city with 12 gates. Everything about it speaks about Israel. It even produces 12 crops that heal the nations, the reason for which God brought Israel into existence. What you're going to read in Jeremiah is a more liberal description of the actual city he's staring at and its future. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Haniel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareth and then turn to go up. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. We do not have time to cover the area that has historically represented hell being made holy. We don't have time to cover so many details in this spot. I'm just going to stop short and say, in your own time, read Revelation 21, 1 through 14. Then read Revelation 22, 1 through 3. Then contemplate Revelation 22, 16, the author of this whole plan. You heard my brothers earlier read from the very first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible. This has been his plan from the very beginning all the way to the end. What I want to center on just as we're about to pray is again our involvement in this. You have been entrusted with something that was planned before the creation of the world and you are now you have knowledge of things that the prophets have longed to look into that ought to have an effect on how we relate to the Lord and the task that he's put in front of us. In closing, first of all, if you don't understand how incredible this is, uh, the, the last verse in Jeremiah 30 has been, has been blessing me. We're going to tell it to you now, and we'll understand it later. <laughs> Please take this to heart as something that what you've been given, we literally reference from the first verse in the Bible until the last tonight. Going through law, prophet, and writing over and over again to give us an understanding, a beautiful backdrop for the last four weeks and now concluding tonight. Ten hours of teaching on one concept of the new covenant. It should make it more precious to you now than it ever has been. The idea that Jeremiah is laying out for us what the new covenant is 
And what we've been talking about gives you a picture, a glimpse of what God had in mind and had in his heart from before time began. Revelation twenty two sixteen says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches. Listen to the concluding remarks in the last book in the Bible, in almost the last verse that's there. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. You should have great confidence that the God... I'm, my mind is blown and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to assimilate it now myself. The idea that creation was put there because he knew what Israel would need to be liberated to become his bride at the end. That the reason that there's a sun and a moon and the stars was not that he started there or just added it as a backdrop. He knew that they, his people would need it in the liberation of what he was going to do in them. That what he proclaims he is able to bring about in someone, this is absolutely precious and we should all take it in the most precious kind of way. We should study this. We should get it down in our hearts. We should let our faith rise because the God who called his shots from before time began, he put the very creation in existence to be able to feel what he had in his heart. He can surely take care of us here in this place. He can surely move upon us and what he's telling us that he will do, he is able to do. And we should be a people that rejoice in that. What an abundance of revelation we have received tonight that we'll continue to chew on. We've been included in an inheritance. Participators with Israel have in our laps a compilation of God's word that is Israel dependent from beginning to end. I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 2. Put up verse 12. Remember at that time, you, Gentiles, were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13 hit me in a whole new way as I was digesting this mountain of revelation. But now in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I focus on that word near. Near to what? Near to Israel. Near to the covenants of the promises to Israel. Near to the hope that Israel has. Near to the God of Israel. You know what our hearts should do in response to this? is be filled with an overwhelming thankfulness and gratitude that we are included with them. Man, if this is what God has done from before the creation of the world for Israel, we've been included, what do we have to worry about? What do we have to fret? That God is able to meet our needs because the hope that we see in Israel is the same hope that we get to participate with them in. So let's stand to our our feet. Right here, right now, we're going to let thankfulness well up in our souls. 
When we walk outside tonight and we see the stars, tomorrow when we see the sun, we're going to reflect back on the revelation that we received tonight. Come on. And know God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people, Israel, and how we get to participate. So as we pray, let faithfulness come out of your soul and let it reach the heavenly realms and let them know who our God is. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your covenant that you've established with your people. We thank you for your blood that you have brought us near with Israel and participated with it. Lord, that you are the sustainer, creator, maker, and father of us all. And we thank you for bringing us into relationship with you and understanding your covenant even better tonight than we did before. We love you, mighty God, and we lift up a shout of praise for the goodness of God.